Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the perfervid, Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? Hey, great. Um, <laughs> I'm well hydrated. So darn dry down here in San Diego this winter, you know? Dude, I don't believe that at all, because that's anecdotal evidence. Garbage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can send you the data, but you won't be convinced by it. <laughs> Hey, what are we talking about today? This is uh, this is the first time I think we've ever re-recorded a podcast. Uh, Bit of a because the passion project for you, this one. I will say, I think this is a topic that I care a lot about that I don't think is particularly well suited for podcasts. But you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make gives do. A, gives a flying fuck. It's actually not true. Somebody legitimately texted <laughs> me and said, "Where's the anecdotal?" yeah okay (laughs) that's true (laughs) because we mentioned we were going to release it and we never did because the other one was i was a little too uh too hyped up too hyped up last time but this is it's okay i like the passion i think that you're acting like this isn't a very serious episode which you're gonna find out it is this is nothing could be more serious than i think it's i think it's definitely serious we've never done a more serious pod so yeah Human rights abuses in Qatar, vastly behind the importance of this issue. Maybe you can make a compelling case. <laughs> okay, maybe a little overstated there, but I do think that this is something that is getting out of hand, and it drives me crazy. Eddie, what what do you think of when you think of animals? Um, I think of the State of the Union oh, when... The president will say, you know, because of my policies, I was, uh, my administration was able to create 75,000 jobs in the Midwest. And we have Bob who got a job at a manufacturing plant in Dayton, Ohio, because of uh, what our administration implemented because of a new plant that was there. And Bob's in the stands. He's right over there. And then the camera pans to bob and it's just like a guy who's like yeah i'm just i was just told to be here you know uh we have lupita well from from new mexico here in the stands today she put her three kids through college because of our plan on nuclear energy take a bow with pizza <laughs> so that was the clip oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was a clip from the 2012 State of the Union. Oh. I played for you. That was a that was a <laughs> that was a live good. that was a live clip. So I don't know what you're talking about. I just played it back. Um... <laughs> it's really good. Anyway, that is one of the. I think that's where it started it used to be pretty rare i think in at least in uh american politics to use kind of anecdotal calls to individual people to make a point and i think it's nowadays seen as kind of it's it's overdone in politics to the point where i think it's lost a bit of its efficacy and it's not the area where i think it's the most damaging although it is maybe the most noticeable so i'm glad you brought that up first but essentially anecdotal evidence is the use of you know personal stories or 
personal tidbits, anecdotes, one might say, to try to add substance to some sort of underlying claim, right? And so we can start off with, because we're talking about anal- anecdotal evidence and how it sucks, we might as well start off with some scientific evidence to uh, make it seem like we're not just uh, spewing bullshit, which we definitely are, but not as much as <laughs> we did some research on this. Um, and so there's uh, an article I sent you, Eddie. Can you, I don't, we're going to test you right now. Did you at least read the abstract? What, what was this article about? Don't test me. <laughs> I'm about to test you in a minute. Just wait. So this article was looking at the efficacy (laughs) of different, (laughs) I know it sounds like I don't know. It's looking at the efficacy of different um, communication strategies, for lack of a better term, on development aid in the donor countries, right? So it's like, hey, the UN says, that we have to get all these developing countries um, to use less, you know, fossil fuels to, for the better of the environment. Hey, rich countries, uh, what if you donate a very small portion of your GDP to these developing countries to help them, you know, become uh, more energy sustainable? And they're like, yeah, okay. But your average uh, person, Germany in this case, where they did the experiment, your average German like could not care less about the um, contribution that its country's making, you know, because it's such a fraction of their GDP, uh, you know, to these developing countries. And so, yeah, anyways, because of the lack of engagement, it kind of looked at how um, different communication strategies were impacting um their uh desire for engagement is that fair to say yeah so basically i mean it's a particular two different types of vague policies and they wanted to see how they could best sell the policy so i'm sure everyone here hopefully because our uh, our viewers are of course very giving and altruistic if you've ever donated to some sort of campaign or something an ngo you know, they'll send you a little note card that says, you know, so-and-so received this, then it allowed them to you know, buy clothes for the day or something like that. That's essentially the most common use of this in this context. And so for this particular article, the, the piece of anecdotal evidence, the condition that the, uh, what it said, in the, so it was basically they talked about a policy and then they had four different conditions. You could either get um, an experimental evidence condition where they talked about the, what was actually done to determine whether or not it was effective a qualitative evidence condition um, where they talked about to a, like a, someone who ran the policy and then an anecdotal evidence condition, which was this right here. It said, Robert Kabinga, who has been living in one of the program regions since he was young, confirms, the program has really improved my life. My family and I no longer have to worry about our diet. So that was basically the little anecdote that they put in. And what did they find, Eddie? They found that the anecdotal evidence was the most effective uh, of the different strategies which is depressing it is depressing and you get why right i mean we all want to help out robert kabinga who is definitely not a real person but wouldn't it be great if him and his family weren't malnourished because of this program um and so i get why it works so there's basically two issues here one is that it's more effective than these other forms of evidence and the reason that's a problem in general is because you could literally apply that to any policy we could have five different programs all doing the exact same thing 
for employment or agriculture or whatever the program is. And all five of them could come up with some person who says, this has helped me. That gives you absolutely no help. It's absolutely no help in determining which of those programs you should give money to, or in the worst case, determining if any of those programs are actually doing net benefit to this area, right? Yeah, I actually think about this all the time and you know, I won't steer us off, off track. because <laughs> This is a very on. streamlined podcast. We- <laughs> I think about this all the time in terms of the idea of magnitude so you get Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, right, to just choose a really low-hanging fruit example. I think I did my Obama. I think you now have to do one of those two people to, to get this going. What happened? <laughs> Dude, brilliant Trump. <laughs> oh, man, HRC. Do you think she's listening? Probably. She's a huge fan. So, to choose a low-hanging fruit example, in they're you know just stand-ins for the Democratic and the Republican Party, right? Let's say in twenty sixteen, they're like both options are bad. The Democrats have so many drawbacks. They have so there's so much hypocrisy on the left. The Republicans, the conservatives, there's so much hypocrisy on the right. Both sides are flawed. I can't recall how many times I heard that over the last, whatever, how many years, but also in 2016, more concentrated. Um, And I just annoys the bejesus out of me because you have one party that eventually like prepared and then egged on an armed insurrection. And then another party that's just marginally corrupt as parties are and so it's this idea of magnitude that um is infuriating to me that like so you have you you read like a heartwarming story about you know bob at the manufacturing plant and now he can feed his family because of this uh you know presidential initiative and you're like oh yeah that means it's good when you're like well this actually this manufacturing plant is terrible for the environment and they're on a contract that's probably going to last maybe five years and then all those jobs are going to go away and here's all the data to back that and then somehow those are equal you know or even the bob story is like more effective that i think is is this idea of magnitude it's like well there should be a level of magnitude that's taken into consideration when people you know think about these complex issues but I feel like it's all just um, flattened into equivalencies, you know? Yeah, and it also really rewards specific types of programs, right? So imagine the, like one of the more classic examples is the kind of effective altruist examples of mosquito nets or um, anti-bacterial pills or um, anti-worm pills versus somebody who is blind and needs like an eye transplant, right? Is Tatis one of our listeners? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good one. That's a real niche niche show. I know. I don't know if anyone's going to get that. <laughs> Oliver <laughs> will. <laughs> nice. Um, so basically, like, imagine you're reading about these two programs, and one person's like, yeah, I didn't get worms this month. And the other person's like, I can see the glory of the universe now because I was given this eye transplant, and I'm no longer blind. Like, of course, you're going to – if that's all the evidence you're given – you're going to give to the guy who can now see for the first time in his life. 
but that doesn't show you that the mosquito nets that you could use the same $10,000 procedure could have saved like 40 different people. Actually, I think it's about three people, but literal lives versus, I mean, it's not, both of them are good, but if you're comparing things, anecdotal evidence should not be how you're deciding to give money. And this is just in the context of aid. So I'm going to get to that. I think the more nefarious types of, at least in the U.S. political context, types of anecdotal evidence here in a second, but we all, yeah. we're all on the same page. Audience is following along. I see my live audience here at home is nodding along. Um, like 30 people sitting around, you know, they, they're like fireside chats style of the podcast. I, so I have a question for you. Yeah. Who do you think made a greater impact um, on humanity as a whole? Mother oh, Teresa? I, I, I didn't think you were going to give me two people after that. I thought you were just like, no. it was an open-ended question. Okay. Mother Teresa or Norman Borlaug? Dude, Norman Borlaug's the man. We should do a whole episode on Norman Borlaug. But I'm down. Most people don't know who that is and so would, by default, choose Mother Teresa. And for good reason, you know, Mother Teresa, there's all these incredible, you know, stories about how she just served like lepers and just you know people forgotten by their governments and by society and and you know the the stories abound right and she was saintly in every regard and she probably personally impacted thousands of lives you know and then influenced maybe hundreds of thousands just by uh, her heart and these stories you know rippling through across the world and the organization she built but norman borlaug through inventing a new form of high yield disease resistant semi-dwarf wheat <laughs> how you can tell that, i'm reading from the wikipedia the, how did that make not make the front news like that's the most attractive sentence i've ever heard in my life so he he was he basically turned areas in the of the world that were um experiencing starvation you know india pakistan um parts of mexico uh and that were you know barren and he threw this uh this new you know high yield disease resistant wheat was able to um turn around the agriculture of you know certain parts of these countries so that there was actual food produced in places that were barren it's like a miracle you know yeah so, so he's, credited with, yeah. he's credited with literally saving millions of lives and that and that's quantifiable you know mm-hmm. yeah so I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly but it's case. not i mean yeah it's not sexy it's not sexy it's very true okay so but he is you should see a photo of this fella his name he's got like a very unattractive name too let's just be real yeah, norman gorlog bad name but you know it happens he's getting his due on this podcast which is basically pinnacle of any achievement so posterity he lives on yeah he won a nobel peace prize but this takes top shelf no doubt about it in the borlog home <laughs> they're probably talking about it right now Anyway, should we shift over to why I think now, in particular, uh, anecdotal evidence has become a huge problem and we haven't solved it? No, I want to keep talking about Norman. (laughs) No, yeah, sure. Okay, 
So this is the part of the podcast that went off the rails last time when we tried to record this a month ago. But I think I'm ready now. Essentially, I think the problem is social media. But a very specific... Jeez, that's novel of you. <laughs> okay, imagine 25 years Social ago. media is bad for you? Wow. <laughs> a, I have an example. <laughs> 25 years ago, that's like right before social media, right? Let's say somebody came up to you and was like, oh, I hear that that new movie is really racist. You'd be like, wow, that movie must be really racist. Because you're reaching into a bag of like 10 people who have seen that movie. These are all the people in your family and people that you know, right? If one in 10 has seen a movie and then is now talking to you about it, even though that's only one person, that's a fairly high percentage. You can, anecdotal evidence actually provides you with a semblance of actual evidence in this case. However, now imagine today that someone wants to write a story about how a movie may or may not be racist. They now have a bag of millions of marbles and they just have to find one and they can search through the bag. They don't just have to pick it out at random. This provides literally no evidence. There are so many marbles in that bag that this now has become absolutely worthless and actually is in 90% of cases misleading because they'll lead with something like people are saying or online black backlash against and it's like no three or four people said this and you found all those tweets and you put them into this story that is not evidence you can search very easily for anything you want to find nowadays on the internet and you can find some sort of support for it that means literally nothing i mean it's still bad if there are a couple people doing terrible things like abuse and those things shouldn't be tolerated even if they're very very small numbers but this is the case for things that are much much more mild but then have come to take over like social media and journalism in particular is a massive problem. I don't think any articles should be allowed to say people are saying or there is a backlash without providing some sort of evidence as to where this is coming from. And I see it all the time and it drives me absolutely crazy. All right, I'm done with my rant. What do you think about this? <laughs> um, I came up with yeah. that Marvel analogy just for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, if, if we could be, you know, proselytizers for this idea of incorporating magnitude into people's thinking. I think that would, I think it's hugely important. Like, what is a meaningful volume of people before, like, if you're a journalist, we need to provide an operating definition of what the threshold for a volume of people is required for it to be a backlash, right? So it's not just like three dumbasses on the internet who are racist trolls. It's like, no, there's, uh, you know, 28,000 people who are against, you know, diversity in this movie and they're rearing their ugly head online. And, you know, we need to come out in support of this because this is, not acceptable that tens of thousands of people are, you know what I'm saying? It's like, then it's actually a problem. Like three dumbasses online, like you're saying, is not worth, it's not newsworthy. This is the thing. I, I think that we need to reposition our brains to incorporate the fact that evidence exists for everything, right? Like, I think it would be amazing to me if a movie came out and somebody didn't say something really dumb online. Like that would be incredible. If, you, if an actual movie came out that, you know, at the least hundreds of thousands of people saw, 
and not one of them said something stupid about it online, that's genuinely like journal journalism. Like if you could actually come up with evidence that was true, <laughs> that would be amazing. I think the, the default should be like, yes, a bunch of dumbasses said trolly stuff online. Like that should not be newsworthy in yeah. today's age. And I think as consumers of media, we need to like push back against this narrative and not retweet or share articles that use this type of shitty evidence. But I don't know. Yeah. You're, you're closer to writing I mean, than me, so <laughs> you're the, you're the journalist here. No, I. Um, so basically, a few months ago, I got a job as a researcher um, for community colleges, and so I'm doing a lot of report writing these days, and I'm dealing with, you know, people like people like you, data people, and I'm narrativizing those data into a narrative with like action points and i get it like i get that it's really tempting for me to take the i guess i think we need to draw a distinction between anecdotal evidence and it being bad and this problem we're identifying and then using like a story to like extrapolating out from data a real human story that's very much in alignment with what the data is saying you know Absolutely. it's not like equating here's like a few anecdotes and then here's the data and these it's kind of at odds with each other there's not super clear alignment but i think well, yeah. the former can be super helpful and it's like no here's what the data is saying here's a human story that's showing you what's happening on the ground and i think that that is good you know uh, yeah, I think it's it's some somewhat of a like perfect negative storm because it's the reason that journalism outlets can get away with a lot of this is because journalism as a profession has become much less monitored and much more you know democratic in the sense that pretty much anybody can get online and report on things. I wonder if it's a carryover from the days when you know you had to have two sources and three sources was seen as like great sourcing whereas now it's like i looked up one thing i contacted these people on twitter and three people emailed me back that's the same it's not that's not the same that's that's not a thing that's yeah yeah so i don't know if it's we need to reframe the way like contemporary journalism incorporates evidence and, and that doesn't say that like there's lots of good journalism that doesn't do this like most very reputable outlets don't do this but a lot of things they go highly viral and that people talk about in their daily lives do rely on these types of evidence and yeah, yeah totally. i agree yeah i i think that's something that i find um interesting that isn't really discussed in the article that you sent me which we'll we'll link to in the show notes as the pros say um well the title of the article is does evidence matter the impact of evidence regarding aid effectiveness on attitudes towards aid. Something I didn't, I don't feel like it really addresses is um, like questioning, again, this is something I'm seeing all the time. I'm seeing my colleagues like put in so much and all of us put in so much time and effort into making like really good, rigorous quality data and then assuming that it just speaks for itself when we put it out into the world, where I would love to see a similar amount of effort put into 
translating that for the lay person so that it's communicable and it's like actionable beyond just a very small circle of people who all use the same acronyms and know what you're talking about. That's your job, right? This is what they pay you the big bucks for. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there they needs need to, to pay, be more. They need to pay you bigger us. bucks. Uh, I just think it's, I don't know. I think that academia really needs to have a come to Jesus moment and be like, what the, like, what, what are we doing here, guys? And it's not to say that we need to stop all the rigorous research. Of course not. But it is to say, like, when you read it, I don't know, when I read an article like this and it's like, yeah, isn't it crazy that like people respond to, uh, an anecdote more than all of this really well-designed uh you know data-based evidence it's like yeah no shit <laughs> yeah yep i i don't know i think we need to be better at communicating rather than not writing you know yeah no i agree so i did we solve it I didn't want this one to go on this long, but I think people get the point. And I'd like, I'd like, <laughs> you're I'd the like, one who told me to do this. Tell me. Well, I'm trying to wrap it up now because I'm like, we, people get it and they're going to turn it off. But I think this was, this one I wanted to do because it's something that it really gets to me. Every time I see those articles, they were like, people are saying, I'm like, no, they're not. They're not saying that. God damn it. <laughs> are we, are we the most self-conscious <laughs> podcast? Yeah, probably. Yeah. No. And we're also <laughs> we're also the greatest. I think that checks out. You guys can look it up, but people are saying that we're the greatest. So share this episode with all your academic friends. See what they have to say. You know? sure well, if we can bring them. I mean, I feel like pretty much everybody in academia hates anchor living, so that's not really the problem. We got other problems, but uh, I'll, I'll, no, I'll pass it well, around. Just- Tell them to fast forward to my, um, you know, calling them out. Dude, they're just going to say, pay that guy the big bucks. No, they're just going to say, this guy doesn't fucking know what he's talking about. (laughs) And they'll be right. (laughs) All right, should we wrap it up? Please, if anybody has a defense where they think those articles are great, please let us know. Uh, Otherwise, just continue to, uh, to send us all your donations and uh, lovely support. And we'll, uh, we'll see you in the new year, probably 2023. Another Whoa. year, another rational-ish podcast wrapping up. Whoa. <laughs> Until 2023, rational listeners. Peace. Peace. Uh, peace.